You're listening to Canada Reads American Style, the only podcast by two librarians from Michigan who love Canada Reads and Canadian literature. Welcome our hosts, tech guru, baker, and historical romance reader Shauna, and content provider, dog lover, and nonfiction and realistic fiction reader Rebecca. Hello, and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. I am really excited to introduce our guest today, David Heska Wombly Wyden. He is an enrolled citizen of the Sachangu Lakota Nation and the author of Winter Counts, which was nominated for the 2021 Edgar Award for Best First Novel and winner of many awards, including the Anthony, Thriller, Lefty, Barry, and McCavity Awards for Best First Novel. He has an MFA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts, a law degree from the University of Denver, and his PhD from the University of Texas. Welcome, David. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. So just for our listening audience, uh, just to, as a reminder, or if we have new listeners, because we have David with us today, uh, Shauna and I are two Michigan librarians who love Canadian literature, and we've read lots of books by Indigenous authors to the north of us. And then in December of 2020, the American Indian Library Association issued the Read Native 21 Challenge, which we've been doing all year. And But I kind of decided that I wanted to really immerse myself in Native American authors. So I did my research and came across Winter Counts before it was winning all the awards. So I was excited to be kind of an early adopter of this awesome novel. And I used it as the book that takes place on a reservation. That's the category I use for my Read Native Challenge. So what I'd like to ask you is if you could give us a summary of Winter Counts and the origin of the title for those who haven't yet read it. Well, I'm delighted. So the title of the book is Winter Counts and it was published by Echo HarperCollins in August of 2020. So it's been out about a year and it was released in paperback in July. And it's just been released in the United Kingdom, which is really exciting. They're getting a taste of it. And it has been translated or is in the process of being translated into, I think, five other languages. It's out in France. So I'm just thrilled that readers here in North America, as well as worldwide, are getting a chance to learn about Native American issues. So let me tell you an overview, provide you an overview of the book, and then I'll explain the title as well. So Winter Counts is the story of Virgil Wounded Horse, who is a hired vigilante on the Rosebud Indian Reservation in South Dakota. And that's that those are my people. I grew up in Denver, but I spent much of my youth in on the reservation. And in fact, I'm heading there in just a couple of days to spend a week there visiting family and, and friends. Um, so th the book is about Virgil Wounded Horse, and he's a hired vigilante because of a series of really outdated and antiquated laws that disadvantage Native American citizens. And these laws forbid Native American nations from prosecuting felony crimes that occur on their own lands. Instead, Native law enforcement officers must bring in the FBI and the U.S. attorney's offices to prosecute serious felony crimes. But here's the catch. The federal authorities, the United States authorities, are declining to prosecute about 40% of all felony cases. And this means that lawbreakers, child abusers, rapists, murderers, arsonists, etc., they're, they're simply released. They're set free to go out and offend again. So 
in in the book, the fictional character of, of Virgil Wounded Horse, he goes out and he gets justice when the U.S. government won't act. So the book is really his story. It's his story to sort of get justice on the res because uh, the reservation heroin is brought into the reservation and it affects his own family. I don't want to give away too many spoilers here. And and so he he steps in to try and stop the heroin from coming onto the reservation. But but the book is much more than that. It's also a meditation on Native American identity in the 21st century. It's also a family story because he is raising his 14-year-old nephew, Nathan. And it's uh, even, there's even a little bit of a romance in there because he uh, uh, rekindles a romance with his ex-girlfriend, Marie. So there's a lot going on in the book, as well as historical and current legal issues that affect Native citizens. And I know we'll talk about that today. Let me quickly explain the origin of the title. A winter count is the traditional calendar system of the Lakota people. So the Lakota people would not use numerals to uh, mark years. Instead, they would draw little pictographs on, say, a buffalo hide to mark the most significant event of the prior year. And so this, this was the winter count system. It was the calendar system. And so I chose that term as a title for the book because obviously as a double meaning, it refers to the significant events that happen in Virgil's life. It's the the, it's also the traditional calendar system, as I noted. And of course, there's the meaning that winter counts in that winter is a difficult system in South Dakota uh, as, as it's a difficult time of year. It's a difficult place to be if you get in some rough weather systems. And so it, 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 it refers to the difficulty that Native people have in the winter up north. And I know you guys are familiar with that. So that is, that is really the, the origin of the title. And I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, because you just mentioned all the layers this book has, and that's what I absolutely loved about it. Because, you know, if you're, if you're, you can read this book and get this out of it, or this out of it, or this, but it was the combination of all of it that was just so fascinating. And for me, what I want to talk about tonight uh, is really sort of the political or the historical issues that I did not know. And when we talk about critical race theory, this is a really perfect example to me about why it's so critical to learn it, because these were things I'm embarrassed to admit that I didn't know. I didn't learn this in school. Somehow I just didn't learn it. So I want to touch base on that. So that's when you talked about how that the tribal courts can charge misdemeanor crimes, but the felonies are referred to federal investigators and 40% of the time they don't. That's just... I couldn't even, I can't even fathom that, to be honest. But then when I started to think about, you know, when you look at the numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, I wondered then, is it a pretty obvious correlation that that's why that happens? And what will it take to change this ridiculous system? And not just for women, of course, but for all felonies on reservations. Do you ever see it changing and how can it change? Yeah, that's a that's a great question or a series of questions. So to answer the first part of the question, absolutely, there's a direct correlation between this law, which is called the Major Crimes Act. The Major Crimes Act was passed way back in 1885. It's it's a law whose time has come and gone, but it's still enforced uh, nationwide. That's the law that prevents Native nations, and we are sovereign, independent nations from prosecuting crimes that occur on our own lands and involving our own people. And so 
the Major Crimes Act is a direct contributor to the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. So, you know, a, a Native person or a non-Native person, a, a bad person that wants to abduct a woman uh, will come onto the reservation um, and they, they know that they're unlikely to be caught because, first of all, criminal justice law enforcement is not funded well on reservations. My nation, the Rosebud Indian uh, tribe, or in our, in our language, the Sichangu Lakota Ayate, we are the size of Delaware, and we have about 15 officers on duty at any one time. So we already don't have enough police officers and law enforcement officials, okay? So they, the, the bad men know that they're unlikely to get caught. But if they are caught, they know that the Major Crimes Act gives them a pretty good chance that they will never be prosecuted. So yes, it's I've I've said in other interviews, it's open season on native women because of these series of laws. Now, we could spend literally hours talking about it. I don't want to bore everyone here. There are about three or four laws that impact criminal justice enforcement on reservations. I'll just give you one. There are overlapping jurisdictions. So which authority has the power to prosecute a crime depends who the offenders are and where the crime took place. So at any one time, you might have the federal law enforcement officials, state law enforcement officials, or tribal police come in. And so this is just a mess. It, it honestly is. And so because of this, we have really high crime rates on many reservations and this terrible and horrific issue of missing and murdered indigenous men and women. Now, you asked, is there a chance that it will change? I am hoping and I am delighted to report that I have heard from a number of people after the publication of Winter Counts. Some legislative staff from the U.S. Congress have contacted me. They read the book. They didn't know about this law. They didn't know about this situation. And they are trying to prepare some legislation to possibly change the situation. And I was absolutely beyond thrilled, beyond delighted. I've heard from the dean of a major law school. I've heard from a former U.S. attorney, all of whom have said, we've been talking about this stuff for years, but your book, it brought it alive and it brought it to a wide audience. Look, I don't know that this is going to change overnight, but I am hoping that the discussion has at least been started nationwide. Okay, that's absolutely incredible. And I will tell you that I'm a regular uh... Uh, writer of letters, I send emails to my uh, all my representatives, and I do I do them in my own language. I don't do those you know form letter things because I really want to make sure they'll hopefully somebody will read it. So I will add that to my list because as soon as I see legislation on that, I'm totally in support of it. And that's amazing that you could have that kind of impact on a, just an unbelievably antiquated and, and evil process. I mean, it's just oh, anyway. I'm gonna. Shut up about it now and move to the next question. Now, this one, I I feel a little bit bad about this only because I've been to Mount Rushmore and I've been to the Crazy Horse Memorial many, many years ago. But to find out, I didn't know they are on sacred ground, which, of course, makes sense. But I didn't connect the dots. And it said and in your book, it says that it was on sacred ground that had been promised by treaty to the Lakota people forever, but stolen after gold was discovered. And I wondered if you think the view of these iconic vacation spots will ever change and people have a different respect for the land. Sure. Let me let me unpack that a little bit for folks that, that are listening. So the Treaty of 1868 promised 
really this massive amount of land, most of South Dakota, Nebraska, parts of Nebraska, Wyoming. Um, and, and it was a sacred treaty, a sacred promise that was made that this land shall be yours forever. Now, this was the result of something called Red Cloud's War. Believe it or not, the U.S. Army was, was defeated on American soil by Chief Red Cloud of the Lakota people. And um, the only one of the few times that the American Army has ever been defeated on American soil, and, and they just didn't want to fight anymore. So the Americans said to the natives, hey, let's, let's meet and let, let's, let's sign an agreement and quit killing us. And the natives said, okay. Um, and so they signed the sacred treaty. Now, for those who don't know, a treaty is a sacred promise. It's even stronger than a law. So I'm, I'm an attorney as well as a professor, and we have a hierarchy of promises the government makes. There's the constitution, then treaties, then laws, then executive re regulations and rules. So this is one of the most sacred promises, a treaty that can be made by the U.S. government. And of course, what, as you know, you've, you, if you've read the book, the U.S. government broke the treaty just four years later because gold was discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And so they, they broke the treaty. And uh, But by that point, the U.S. Army had grown much stronger militarily. And so the Lakota people could not fight anymore. And so the sacred treaty was was broken. This is now the other thing I'll point out here is the Black Hills to us are sacred. They would be the equivalent of Jerusalem for Christians. Um, so it's it really is sacred ground to us, and it was promised to us. And so the fact that Mount Rushmore was built right, you know, on the side of a mountain that we called Seven Grandfathers, it's 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 a direct insult to the Lakota people. Um, so you know, native people have sort of a strange feeling about Mount Rushmore. We are American citizens as well as citizens of our own native nations. And and yes, the, the Mount Rushmore is quite an awe-inspiring sight. I've, I've seen it a number of times. I've taken my two children to see it. And, and when you see it, you're, you're proud of the USA. But as a native person, especially a Lakota person, you're also feeling, oh, wait, ouch, this is, this is our land, which was stolen. And, you know, we, we have never... Uh, uh, given away the land, there was in fact a, a lawsuit, which is also mentioned in the book, where the U.S. Supreme Court agreed that the treaty had been broken and they awarded us a large, hundreds of millions of dollars. Lakota people refused to take the money, said, no, we want the land back. That money is sitting in an interest-bearing savings account right now. It's over a billion dollars. But we have never taken the money because we want the land back. Now, your, the last part of your question was, will this ever change? I, I, I can't see that happening, honestly. What what are we going to do? Just <laughs> kick everybody out of the Black Hills and, and say, okay, natives, it's 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 your land again. I don't know uh, uh, that that is going to change. You know, what, what I have suggested, and not, not in the book, is that the U.S. government acknowledge that these treaties were broken and, and try to make reparations in a different way, like perhaps an educational fund. People think that Native Americans get free college. I can assure you that it's not the case. And I have the student loan debt to back it up, okay, as a first-generation college student. So I thought that maybe maybe an educational fund to provide free college for every Native American child, maybe that's a way to make up for all of these broken promises. So I will I will leave it there and 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 stop. Well, it's interesting when you talk about the, you know, giving the land back, because I know in Oklahoma, there was that land back um, 
sort of amazing. I can't remember the details specifically, but a, a certain tribe, I think, got some land back. But I don't know, like, what does that mean in real terms and in terms of that whole land back movement? So the case in Oklahoma, I actually wrote an essay on that in the New York Times. If anybody wants to read it, if you're having trouble going to sleep at night, read my New York Times article and you'll go right to sleep. But you can read what I have to say about that very issue. It's, the essay is posted, a link to it, on my website, davidwyden.com, and you can read what I said about that. So, so the, the issue in Oklahoma was somewhat different. It wasn't exactly land back. It was that the land had been native all along, but that the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, yes, we actually need to start enforcing these boundaries. So in essence, about a third of Oklahoma, which had been native land all along, was finally recognized as such. And so it's a big mess there. They're still trying to work out the criminal justice issues down there. Land back is a slightly different concept that says the land should be returned and non-native people should leave the land and i'm not seeing that that happening um and especially in south dakota so so yeah they're they're related issues um yeah so i don't know how it would work you know if somebody has a, a great idea look send me an email i'd like to hear it <laughs> and just so that our listeners um we will link to the article and also to david's uh, website as well so we'll make it real easy for you to find all this information um, all right. So my next question, and this was a quote from one of the characters in the book who I kind of liked his Jerome. I, I really liked him. And he uh, made a comment where he said, our people are sacred too, not just the land and the water. And I just thought that was really beautiful. And I just wondered if you could just talk about that a little bit. I will, but I'll, I'll give you, before I jump into the quote, I'll tell you that I am writing the sequel to Winter Counts right now. Um, yes, there is a sequel excellent. coming out. Um, <laughs> probably, it won't probably see the light of day until 2023 because publishing is very slow. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I will tell you, I don't want to give away too much, but um, something bad is going to happen to Jerome in the next book. Mm, so, okay. <laughs> thanks, yeah. for, thanks for giving me a heads up on that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so let me let me kind of unpack this for folks that are listening. So, in, in Jerome is a medicine man, so a, a holy person in our spiritual tradition, and and my my hero in the book, Virgil Wounded Horse, he he really respects Jerome, sees him as a father figure in many ways, and he goes and he talks to him when he has problems. And Jerome is very very wise, and and Virgil and Jerome have a talk about justice and and what does it mean to do justice because Virgil is troubled by being a vigilante he knows that this is not necessarily the right thing to do in his life you know he he has a deep sense of morality and 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 he's troubled by the morality of a vigilante justice so he talks to jerome and jerome at one point says well you know people don't understand our concept of justice they they don't understand our worldview they they think that we worship the land and the earth and and we do steward and and take good care of the land and the earth but but they don't understand that we also view our people as sacred so this is i find a common misconception people think that native americans that we're all oh, we're so close we love the land and the earth and and we do but but that is a a not a complete understanding of our worldview because what it is is that we view people as sacred too not just land and so justice means acknowledging the sacredness of human beings and acting in such a way to recognize and respect that. 
So that's what I was trying to get at. I don't know that I was completely successful. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, that I, I love that part. And, and it's funny too, because I kind of keep quotes from books that I really love. And, and that was just a quote that really just jumped out at me. I just thought it was so beautiful. So thank you for that. And, and now you did kind of mention a little bit about reparations. So I just wanted to bring up, this was something new to me as well. I didn't know this about the depredation claims where white settlers could be financially compensated if attacked back in the day. <laughs> and so I know, especially with everything that's happened in our world with um, all the protests, you know, the African-American reparations uh, issue has been raised again. And I wondered if you think, do you see reparations for Native Americans in the future, or do you think there's a better approach? And I love the idea of the education. I wish we could open up that billion dollars and make that available to people. So anyway, I'll let you answer that. Sure. So depredation claims, this was something that was built into the American law way back when, you know, the frontier was being settled. And by being settled, what we mean is that Native Americans were being removed from the land that we have owned for tens of thousands of years. And so to try to convince people to move to Native lands where they, they might be killed by Natives who were quite properly trying to protect what was theirs they would often build in these things called depredation claims, which is that if a white settler were to have some endure some sort of loss on native lands, then he or she could be compensated, would be compensated by the U.S. government. So it's kind of a throwaway line in the book. Tommy, who's kind of my comic character in the book, he says, how about a depredation claim of the heart? Um, <laughs> well, I think Vir maybe it's Virgil says, this. I don't even know. I can't remember. Yeah. Now, one of them says it. Yeah. And yeah, Virgil <laughs> not like I wrote the book or anything, you know? Yeah, and Virgil so, said it. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of them says it. And they're like, how about a depredation claim of the heart? You know, what if what if my heart is broken? Can I file some sort of claim? So it's kind of a, a throwaway line that I just threw in there. And so I'm really delighted to have you mention it because I've done, oh, I don't know, 150 interviews. And this is the first time that anybody has ever mentioned that. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and again, that's what I loved about the book is there, there are so many layers and even I, you know, I know the quote comes from that line that Virgil says, but to me, I was so shocked when I read it. I thought that's just, it's so ridiculous, but understandable in the whole, you know, manifest destiny sort of style that we uh, settled this country away from the people who are already here. <laughs> but anyway, um, now I did want to ask because I've also been to Wounded Knee and you had a quote, which I wanted to have you explain or talk a little bit about, because I thought this was fascinating as well. When you referred to Wounded Knee, you said it, quote, represents the end of the Indian era when natives lived freely on our traditional lands, unquote. And I wondered if you could just talk about that a little bit. I would, but I'd like to return just for a moment to the issue of reparations, especially for folks that are listening in and, and maybe don't know about this issue. Again, so my day job I am a professor of Native American studies as well as a writer, and so I, I teach these issues. So let me just point out here. So a depredation claim is something slightly different than the idea of reparations. Now, the issue of reparations, what a reparation is for folks that are listening is, I think we probably all know, it is a financial settlement for some past harm. Now, there have been reparations paid in the United States. Indeed, fairly recently, the U.S. government gave substantial financial reparations to those citizens who were during World War II, uh, you know, Japanese citizens, Americans, you know, but of Japanese heritage that were put into these internment camps. And so we paid 
substantial uh, uh, rep financial reparations to them or their surviving heirs for the three years that they were treated so terribly in, in these internment camps. So there is a, a very strong precedent for paying reparations. And now the problem is, how do you value it? If three years in an internment camp is worth a billion dollars, what could the reparation be for hundreds of years and the theft of the North American continent and the genocide of, you know, a hundred million Native American people? How, what, how, do you, how do you compensate for that? I mean, there, there really isn't enough money in the U.S. Treasury. And so my students and I, we talk about this a lot. And, you know, and, and again, the idea is, could we set up an educational fund? Could we do something? Because at this point, there, there is no, there had been no reparations paid uh, for Native Americans who we, we have certainly been harmed, you know, at least as badly as, as some of the other groups. Um, so it's an issue that we would certainly like to see, not that we're money hungry. It's just that we would like our land. You know, we would like, we would like to be compensated for some of what we've lost. I'll give you a quick example. On my reservation, I quote unquote own three pieces of land. On the Rosebud Reservation, I quote unquote own three little plots of land, but I don't really own it because that land is held in trust by the federal government. They decide what to do with it. I have no say in it. I'm not even allowed on my own land. Right now, the federal government has seen fit to lease out my land to three white ranchers. And so they operate cattle ranches on my land. And I receive rent every six months from those ranchers. My, my last payment was $1.29 for six months of rent. So uh, you can see it's a fairly nominal amount, to say the least. This is emblematic of what's going on. I supposedly own land, but I don't really. I can't sell it. I can't build on it. I can't decide what to do with it. It seems to me that I should, you know, we should be owed some sort of reparation for the land that was taken. Um, so this is just a brief introduction to the issue of reparation. So if you want to add on to that, I'm, I'm happy to stop here or I can move right on to the wounded knee quote. Um, no, I just, I mean, that just blows me away that you have land, but that it's really, it's your land, but it's not your land. And that they set the price apparently to these ranchers and you get, a, 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 I mean, that's an insulting uh, rent. And, and there's again, nothing, that can change that? Or is there, I mean, it just, I'm kind of gobsmacked on that one. Well, to be fair now for, I'm sure if anybody's listening and they have some awareness of Native American issues, they're probably screaming right now because what about the Cobell land buyback program? So to be fair, there was a lawsuit about 10 years ago. It stretched on for a decade called uh, the Cobell lawsuit. So this Native American woman who worked for the U.S. government, Eloise Cobell, she discovered that the U.S. government had been systematically cheating natives of the pittance that we get for this, these rents and such. All of this money is kept, the, the, the tiny bit of amount that I get, tiny amount of money that I get is kept in a federal bank, a federal account called an IIM account. So every native person that has some sort of financial interest, land or mineral rights or something, you know, we, we, our money is kept by the U.S. government. Well, surprise, surprise. She discovered that the U.S. government had been systematically taking that money, cheating us out of it, literally like embezzling the money from the, the poorest citizens in America, embezzling the money away. And she blew the whistle. And there was a massive lawsuit that discovered, you know, 
hundreds of millions of dollars had been stolen from the poorest people in America. And so we won the lawsuit, but the U.S. government refused to pay for about six years. So finally, in the Obama administration, they negotiated a settlement that was just a fraction of what the jury awarded, because what could we do? The U.S. government wouldn't pay. They said, we're not going to pay it. And so we actually we finally negotiated this settlement that was not even what we had won in court. And part of that was something called the Cobell land buyback. So we were offered the chance to sell our pieces of land back to the government. But as you can guess, the amounts that were offered were low and insulting. I was offered a hundred bucks or so for my land. And even, you know, and look, even though I don't really own the land, I, I own it at least in name and I wanted to pass it on to my boys. And I didn't want to give up my interest just for a paltry hundred dollars. So to be fair, there was an effort. Most natives did not quote unquote, sell back their land, you know, sell back their land to the federal government. Most of us hung on to it. And now that program is largely over. So yeah. anyway, well, probably more detail than you wanted. No, no, I, I, I want to be fair. No, no, I love all the detail. This is, this is really fascinating. And, and even when you say to be fair, that there's another side of the story, it's still a hundred bucks for your property. I mean, for your land, it's just, it's just, yeah. Anyway, I'm going to try and keep moving on here. Cause I, that's why I say I'm learning things that I didn't know. And this is what really bothers me about the whole argument about, you know, critical race theory and how we shouldn't teach it or whatever. And I just feel like if any, you know, halfway thinking human being hears these stories, how can they feel otherwise? I just don't understand that. So I really do appreciate you going into this level of detail for us. Thank you. But yeah, we'll go back to the wounded knee quote, which is that wounded knee represents the end of the Indian era when natives lived freely on our traditional lands. If you could talk about that. I would be thrilled to, and I'll do yet one more digression because I just want to point out to listeners, I think, because I'm thinking now, anybody listening to this broadcast <laughs> probably would say, oh gosh, do I not want to read that book? You know, it oh, sounds oh, yeah, like yeah. a dry, <laughs> boring treatise oh, yeah. on native complaints. I do want to point out that that the book hopefully is something of a page turner. It is, an, you know, it's a crime thriller, it's got a strong plot, but I build in on the margins a lot of these native issues. But I, I do want to point out to folks that, you know, I have been told that is like one of the most thrilling books that a lot of people have read. So um, yeah. there, there is a story and a plot in there and good characters, I hope, anyway. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let me, yeah, let me say, and when I do my little description for this podcast, I will make that clear. I personally just got so much out of it in terms of, because I'm I love history, I love just learning something I didn't know. And so I pulled all these little nuggets out of it. But yes, the book itself, if you were to read it, like I said, it, you're, there are so many layers to it. And just because this is my take on it, I don't want anyone else to not read this book because of it. Again, think of all the awards it's won and it's incredible and there's going to be a sequel. So that's what's most important. So I promise everybody you will love this book. Okay, that was my disclaimer. Okay, go ahead, David. Fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. So let me, uh, and, and oh, and it's been option for film as well. So, but we'll see. If and when, yeah, if and when that actually happens, uh, a well-known production company does have it, but but um, as of this point, I, I don't really know anything. No, let me ask you this. Who would you want to have play Virgil Wounded Horse? Oh, boy. You know, I a lot of my my fans, they do this thing called Dreamcasting. On, on the platform Instagram, I've had a couple of fans, they actually, like, cast the film with Native actors that they think would be great. And so... 
yeah, they keep coming to this guy, Jason Momoa, who I, I as as Virgil, and uh, for a long time, I wanted this native actor, Zon McLaren. He's been in Longmire and a lot of things. He most recently was in this really great show called Reservation Dogs. He was the tribal police officer. And and for a long time, I wanted him, but I see now he's not really right for that. Zon McLaren would be Rick Crow, sort of the bad guy in the book. I can see him as as really playing a villain, so, but you know, all of this is out of my hands. You know, I mean, I, I, I sold the rights, and Hollywood can do what they want with it. So, okay, I'm going to finally get to this this question here. So, so you asked. I I, I mentioned in the book uh, that Wounded Knee, the the massacre at Wounded Knee back in the 1800s, that it represents the end of the Native era when when represents the end of the Indian era when natives live freely on our traditional land. So, the the symbolic significance of the massacre of Wounded Knee in the mid-1800s is that it really was the end of an era. So for tens of thousands, if not even longer, Native Americans have roamed North America freely. It is It has been our land. And then, of course, the, the Europeans came and the settlers came and colonized and began moving us to reservations which in the early days were really prison camps. Um, now you can move, people can move on and off the reservation freely, but that was not the case. It was a crime for natives to leave the reservation back in the day. So they really were, were prison camps or concentration camps. Hitler, by the way, was very much taken with the Indian system or devised by the US government, and he used it to devise his horrific system. So Wounded Knee, the massacre of it, it is one of the last remaining free bands of natives had been roaming up in Canada and the U.S. Army was chasing them. And so these Lakota people, it was about 200, 300 people, and they were sick. It was the middle of winter. They hadn't eaten. They're, they were all sick and weak. And their, their leader, Chief Bigfoot, had a t the flu. They were just on their last legs. And they were one of the last bands of free natives and so they finally surrendered. They were racing to the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, where they were told they were told that they'd be given some some shelter. But the U.S. Army found them before they could get to any sort of shelters, and they were in a large valley on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And th what happened at the massacre is it's kind of disputed what happened, but what what we believe what happened is there was a native person there in the band, and and he was deaf. And he couldn't hear. And so when when he was told to put down his arms, he couldn't hear or he didn't understand. So he didn't put down his weapon. And so the U.S. Army just started shooting. Now, everybody else had disarmed. So this was a almost completely unarmed group of mainly sick men, women and children, babies. And it was one of the most horrific massacres ever. The army literally chased little babies across the plains and shot them in the head you know, women were screaming. They, they, there was no attempt just to round these people up and imprison them. It was a slaughter. It was just a slaughter. And how anybody could, you know, shoot a little baby in the face, I, I, I don't understand that. And so, uh, um, you know, only, you know, a handful survived. But word got out among Native lands what the U.S. Army, that they were willing to just murder women, children, babies in the most awful ways. And that really broke the spirit of, of natives. And so the time in which 
natives had roamed freely and 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 been able to have some dignity in their lives that that ended with the massacre and after that we were a colonized people you know forced onto these little plots of land where we were humiliated and not given our freedom or any respect or dignity so wounded knee really is kind of where we it's, it's where we place the marker between traditional native ways and and what was to come after that hmm. all right so i'm i have just two kind of quick questions well this might not be a quick question but i do want to say one thing because i the, the one message i also don't want to leave people with is is the the tragedy and trauma that native americans have suffered at the hands of the u.s government and the people here. Um, so I'm wondering if you want to say something really positive and uplifting that's really great and awesome. And then I have one final question after that. Oh, thank you so much for the ability to, to expand upon that. Because look, when you're Native American, there are a lot of tragedies that we carry around with us. There's a passage that I often read in the book um, where Virgil muses, he's like, I wonder what it would be like to not be Native, to not have to carry around the murdered ancestors, the stolen land, the trauma that every native person carries. And so, you know, anybody listening to this, you know, would probably think that, oh, this is just dark and all it is just natives, you know, uh, talking about trauma and what they've lost and all that. But, but actually, I wrote the book to be a celebration of native life. Reservation life is, is hard in many ways because economic development there is not good. The unemployment rate is about 85%. We have a lot of problems on the reservation, but it's also a wonderful, joyful place with a people that have a strong culture and a strong love for each other. So the, the, the book is also a celebration of the joy, the humor, the resiliency of Native American people. And that, I think, is what most people take away from it, because we're not a defeated people. We're a people that survived even under the worst conditions possible and still manage to have children and joy and laughter. Natives are some of the funniest people I know. If you've been watching that show, Reservation Dogs mm -hmm. on Hulu, <laughs> it's hilarious, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the book really is a celebration of Native American life, culture, and of reservation. So thank you for the chance to talk about that. Yeah, and I have to say, for those uh, for those women out there, especially who really love a good love story, they all, there's also a wonderful love story in it as well with Virgil and Marie. So I love that too. So um, that was really beautiful. Um, now, my last question for you is: since you teach Native American studies, and we are participating in the Read Native Twenty One Challenge, are there any Native American authors on your syllabus, or anybody that you might want to highlight for us that we could also include? Oh boy, so many. Thank you. I, know. I, always, I always love this question when I get it. So I often get a, a question from people that have read the book and they, they want to know more about Native American issues in, in a non-fictional sense, but they don't want to read a history textbook or a Native American studies textbook because it's dry and I get that. And so the book that I recommend to them is by my friend David Troyer, T-R-E-U-E-U-E-R. -E -E I'm pretty sure that's right. And it's called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. Now, it is a book of history, but it is not dry. It is wonderful. It's a page turner. It was nominated for the National Book Award, I think, in 2019 in nonfiction. And it is a wonderfully readable book. And it's obviously written from a Native uh, perspective. He's a Native person from Minnesota. Uh, but it is, it is, if you want to learn more about these issues in an engaging, interesting way, I really can't recommend that book enough. So that that would be sort of the, the nonfiction book that I would recommend. For fiction, 
Uh, there are a lot of great books. We're, we're in this, this wonderful time where Native American writers were kind of flowering everywhere. A thousand flowers are blooming. It's, it's no longer just a handful of writers dominating the scene. We've got crime writers like myself, and we've got science fiction writers, horror writers. So let me just give you a couple of those. My good friend, Stephen Graham Jones, who lives in Boulder, Colorado, not too far from me, he writes some of the best indigenous horror out there. So his book, The Only Good Indians, was a bestseller. And it's a, it's a great native horror book, if that's your thing. Um, uh, my friend Brandon Hobson is a Cherokee citizen. He writes what we would call traditional literary fiction. He writes about um, uh, Cherokee myths and legends, and it's, it's great stuff. His book is called The Removed. Kelly Jo Ford is another Cherokee citizen. She has a great book, um, Crooked Hallelujah. There we go. That's the name of it. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention my partner, uh, the native writer, Erica Worth. She has, uh, we live together, so she's in another room here. Um, she, uh, she has a great book out set in Denver called Crazy Horse's Girlfriend that a lot of people have called a young, a YA young adult classic. Um, and, uh, but, but I'm most excited for her. She signed a contract with a big New York press, and she has a book coming out in about a year called uh, White Horse. And then I'll, I'll close with another another fantastic young adult novel um, by Angeline uh, uh, Bouli. Um, now I'm forgetting the name of it. It's <laughs> the Firekeeper's yeah. Firekeeper's Daughter, right? Firekeeper's Daughter. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I was just e emailing with her the other day, and boy, you want to talk about a book that's taking the YA world by storm? That was number one on the New York Times list for a while. And she's just a lovely person. And I've read some of that book, and it's it's a crimey book, but more of a young adult, you know, it's for children and young adults. And, and that's a good one as well. So, you know, this, all of this is happening in just the last five or six years. So what a wonderful time it is. Plus to be a native writer, plus all this stuff on the TV that we've talked about. I've mentioned reservation dogs a few times, but there's also a great show called Rutherford Falls, which I found to be hilarious. I just loved. And there are movies coming out and just, it, it's just a great time to be a native artist. You just wrapped that up so beautifully. And thank you so much, David, for talking with us today. And again, I'm going to make it clear in my uh, notes for the uh, description of this is that you're really going to love this book. So don't just think of it as this, you know, it's very, it's celebratory. It's wonderful. You learn something, but it's just fabulous. So anyway, thank you so much, David, for joining us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe and tell all your friends about Canada Reads American Style. Bye.